The goal of this uh, six-part series has been to help you find more joy in God so that you can find more joy in your marriage and God gets more glory in your joy. So this series actually has the potential to discourage you. You probably see a great chasm between where you are and where God wants you to be. At least I hope you can see that chasm. And if you plan to traverse that chasm by your own determination and exertion, you're you're probably going to be discouraged. So your willpower won't carry you across the chasm. Only one thing traverses that chasm, the righteousness of Christ. Grace takes you across that chasm. Grace helps you take baby steps toward greater obedience and joy. Check out this uh, short video here. You are kidding me. Saved by Daddy. Yay! Oh, oh my. It's awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome. Jeremiah. Keep climbing. Do you have it on? Yeah. Um. Go ahead, Maria. Yeah. Our Father loves us, and His grace is sufficient for us. He rejoices over us with shouts of joy. When we fall, He is there with His grace, and His marvelous grace helps us take baby steps. Baby steps. The gospel doesn't simply save you. The gospel transforms you and gives you power to step. Romans 12, not about marriage. It's not about marriage. It's about the Christian life. Romans is a book about the gospel. It's about the righteousness of God. And chapter 12 defines for us what the gospel-centered life is. Paul wanted his readers to see what the gospel should produce in their lives. He told them how to live. All of it applies to marriage. So this entire message is pure application. It, It shows you what God's grace can produce in your marriage when you trust Christ. There are 22 points today. Amen? We're going to be here for a long time. Now, there are short points, but it, it's a little different of a sermon, but I think that you'll find it very relevant, and I think that you'll find it highly practical. But when you look at this message, it could overwhelm you. But if it does, the chances are that you are focusing on your own effort instead of God's grace enabling your effort. Big difference. Do not take your eyes off of God's grace during this message, or you're done. You're just finished. Remember, it is God who works in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Keep your eyes on Christ. Here we go. Number one, let love be genuine. Love is genuine or it isn't love at all. Coldplay is a great band. I love, love their music, but sometimes their lyrics are absolutely absurd. In their song, True Love, they sing... So tell me you love me, and if you don't, then lie. 
lie to me and call it true, call it true love. Well, that's not true love. That's hypocrisy. God wants you to truly and genuinely love your spouse. Sometimes we love our spouse in order to be loved by our spouse. And that's not genuine love. That's manipulation. Genuine love takes joy in the act of giving and blessing our spouse for the sake of God's glory and our spouse's joy. So let me ask you, is your love genuine? 1 John 4, 7 says love is from God. So when God pours his love into your heart and it overflows into your spouse's love, then your love is genuine. Number two, abhor what is evil. Too many couples revel in evil instead of revile evil, and it significantly damages their marriage. God calls us to hate evil, to be disgusted by evil. Fourteen people were brutally murdered in Southern California by Muslim terrorists. It's easy to abhor that. Over 57 million children have been aborted in the U.S. since 1973. It's easy to abhor that. It's not so easy to abhor our own spiritual apathy or pride or laziness or poor time management or anger or lust or greed or deceit or pessimism or gossip. Do you hate all evil? You see, the closer we are to Jesus Christ, the more deeply we will hate all evil. Think of it this way. When you eat crisp and fresh asparagus, then when you taste overcooked and limp asparagus, it tastes disgusting. It's terrible. Well, so it is. Taste and see that the Lord is good, and then evil won't taste so good to you. That brings us to number three, hold fast to what is good. Evil pleasures are always inferior pleasures. God calls us to enjoy greater pleasures. Walking by faith is believing that God and his blessings are better than sin. You see, God is the supreme good. Hold fast to God and the things that God considers good including your spouse. So let's say you're dangling over a 600-foot ravine. How tightly are you gripping the rope? You're holding on for dear life. You're not letting go of that rope. Paul used the word kalaomai, which is the same word Jesus used to describe a husband holding fast to his wife. So as we abhor evil, God wants us to cling with all that we're worth to what is good, and what is good is always beneficial for us. Hold fast to each other as husband and wife. Hold fast to your Bibles. Hold fast to your prayer time. Hold fast to honesty, forgiveness, passion, laughter, love. Hold on to your God. God never loosens his grip on you. So as he clings to you by his grace, cling to him with all your worth. It will help your marriage. Number four, Love one another with brotherly affection. William Penn uh, founded Philadelphia in 1682. Philadelphia is the Greek word for brotherly love. And Penn chose that word because I think that was his vision for the city. Siblings oftentimes 
share this warm-hearted affection and, and this uh, care and, and uh, devotion that are not easily broken. If you and your spouse are both believers who love the Lord, then it would strengthen your marriage to treat one another as brother and sister in Christ. Be the closest of friends. Show each other brotherly affection and encourage each other in the Lord. Head to Philadelphia with your spouse. God can lead you there. Number five, outdo one another in showing honor. In, in some things, it shows honor to let someone go first. So husbands, open the door for your wives. It shows honor to her. Uh, but in some things, it actually shows honor to go first. Crossing a minefield. Honey, why don't you go first on this one? All right. That's not good. That's not good. Shame on you, man. The Greek for outdo means leading the way or being eager to do something. Paul's idea is to eagerly lead the way to recognize the worth of others, including your spouse. Are you racing to show more honor to your spouse? Are you running to beat them there? I will outdo you in showing honor and validating your worth. Too many times we seek to be honored. Number six, do not be slothful in zeal. Can we just say, let's get excited about being married? At least for the next generation. Man, if that's what they're doing, I'm not ever getting married. Let's get excited about this. Have you, have you ever been in one of those bored, lazy moods where everything you hear about doing, like every option you want to do this, it just sounds unappealing? And you're like, eh, no, no. You know, so, hey, let's go to the mall. Nah, sit around... Christmas, excuse me, there are too many people there. You know, let's get a movie at Redbox. No, nah, I've seen everything that's out and nothing good is out right now. Okay, how about we eat at McDonald's? Now, nah, I, you know, I saw a documentary that McDonald's uses radioactive material in their burgers, so yeah, I can't do that. Okay, well, how about a cruise to Aruba? Nah, I never was a big fan of getting sand in my shoes. And, you know, those people are great to be around, aren't they? They make life fun, all right? The idea behind slothful is hesitating to do something of value. Could be a lack of ambition. Just don't feel like it. Zeal, on the other hand, is enthusiastic diligence. You stay at it with energy, excitement, enthusiasm. Because of Christ, Christians should never hesitate to get excited about doing what is good. Never. Never. Have you been lazy in your marriage? Are you zealous to do what God calls you to do? Too many times we are excited about what dulls our marriage and indifferent about what would actually excite our marriage. So instead of being sluggish, number seven, be fervent in spirit. Enthusiasm makes a huge difference in marriage. Do you know when water bubbles up when it's boiling? It might even spill over the pot and then it hits the burner and it sizzles and so it's just boiling up. Well, Paul used the word zeo, which literally means boiling or welling up. That's what Christians should be like on the inside, boiling over with enthusiasm for God and for holiness. When you're enthusiastic about serving God in your marriage, it will be more exciting. For you. Now, we ask, 
Some of you by nature are not real excitable. I happen to have one of those personalities where it's just so. But that doesn't mean that I've got the right type of enthusiasm. So let me just ask you, where do we get enthusiasm? If you find yourself low on the enthusiasm meter, where do you go? Only the Holy Spirit can produce in you the enthusiasm you don't currently have. It's really a spiritual enthusiasm. You get that by delighting in God and living for him. Number eight, serve the Lord. In verse 11, the word for serve is actually the verb form of slave. Slaves have great marriages. Here's what I mean by that. Two people living as slaves beneath the sovereign rule of their master, Jesus Christ, will have a healthy marriage. A Lord is someone who possesses legal power and authority over property. Are you a Christian? Be honest about that. Are you a follower of Jesus? If so, then you belong to Christ. You are his property. He bought you with his blood. That means that you serve him as master. He is your Lord. He is your everything. And the implications of the lordship of Christ over your marriage are incalculable. At the heart of every healthy marriage is servitude to Christ. And he provides a married couple with absolutely everything that they need to serve God and to serve each other faithfully. You see, sadly, a lot of people, they want Jesus Christ to be their savior and to rescue them from hell, but they don't want him as their Lord telling them what to do. But you see, it's not an either or. It's a both and. You must have him as savior and as Lord. To be a true Christian is to serve Christ as master. Number nine, rejoice in hope. The hope of many people is uncertain because they hope most in uncertain things. Hope is expecting that something good is coming your way. But if you hope in something that might not come, at best your hope is uncertain. But if you hope most in the certainty of Christ, then you can rejoice in that sure and certain hope. What if you hope most in the economy or the next presidential candidate or humanity in and of itself or the safety of your family? What if you hope in those things? Well, you can't fully rejoice in those things because none of those things are guaranteed. None of those things are absolutely certain. Psalm 42 says, hope in God. When you hope in God and his sure eternal promises and blessings, then and only then can you truly rejoice because God is a sure thing. And I think that, I think it's okay to expect that God is bringing good things in our lives, temporal blessings. I think that's okay. But good things as he defines good things and never hope in those good things as our ultimate hope in life because hope in God is the bedrock from which hope in anything else rests. So please don't hear me say that if we hope in God that there is no hope that any good will come on earth. I don't think we need to go that far. Our ultimate hope, our greatest hope, our foremost hope is in God. Titus 2.13 says, waiting for our blessed hope, or you could even say happy hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our greatest hope 
is the certain appearance of the glorious Christ. And that hope excites true happiness, true joy, true gladness and rejoicing. When our hope is certain, we can rejoice in it. More marriages need that kind of hope. Number 10, be patient in tribulation. Marriage, newsflash here, marriage can be tough sometimes, if you haven't recognized that. And people talk about the honeymoon phase of something, and they rip off from marriage in order to describe the goodness of something, and that's interesting because sometimes the honeymoon is tough. How many of you struggled in some way on your honeymoon? Get your hands up. A few of you are honest. Praise the Lord. A few of you are honest. The word for patient here is holding ground when everyone else flees. To be patient in tribulation means that you endure when things get tough. You don't bail when things get tough. Too many husbands and wives never taste the richness of marriage because they ran when it got tough. Great things take time. Nowadays, even professing Christians justify divorce in a thousand different ways, but the Bible's justification of divorce is much, much more narrow than what we have made it out to be. So the overwhelming message to Christians and the world, to married couples, must be be patient in tribulation. Keep loving when it's tough. Well, how do you do that? Well, one way is number 11. Be constant in prayer. I ran the 2003 Philadelphia Marathon, and my training was both constant, it had to be, and rigorous, and I'm not really a runner. Look at me. I mean, I'm not built like a runner. I am not fast by any way uh, of the imagination there, but I was able to run 26.2 miles in uh, just under three hours and 51 minutes because my training was constant. How did I reach the finish line? This is so easy. I kept running. Isn't that great? I just kept running. Was it hard? Absolutely it was hard. It was almost like an exercise-induced anesthetization at certain points. I just was like this doll, just keep moving, shirt. And and I walked a little bit, and I stretched it uh, one time during the race, but I kept moving. I kept moving. I kept running toward the end. That's how our prayer life needs to be. Are you constant in praying for your spouse? Are you constant in praying for your marriage? Are you relentless? You see, relentless prayer is a lifeline for marriage. Prayer alone could revitalize your marriage. Here's the key. Pray constantly because you desire and need God. That's what should be at the heart of your prayer. Number 12, contribute to the needs of the saints. Want a happier marriage? Focus less on your marriage and more on how you as a couple can love and serve fellow Christians. Paul wanted the church in Rome to really care for one another's needs. You have deep needs. I have deep needs. We all have deep needs. And our role as Christians is to meet those needs that we have, to love one another. To do that as a couple is to pursue great joy in your marriage. Saints in this verse, they're the holy ones. They're Christians. They're believers. Are you and your spouse developing the skill for uncovering the needs of your brothers and sisters and devoting yourselves to meet those needs? 
Is that what your marriage is about? As a couple, be generous with your money. Be generous with your time. Be generous with your skills. Let me be the one to say it. We need you married couples here at Jerusalem Church. We need you to do this. Your marriage exists in part to meet the needs of others for the glory of God. 13, seek to show hospitality. A few years ago in Pittsburgh, my friend Grant was in the public library and he noticed this uh, unmarried young couple that was uh, really beside themselves. They were looking for a cell phone, couldn't find one, and uh, they were pretty distressed. And uh, the guy had actually gotten kicked out of his home and his girlfriend was a drifter from another city so she didn't have family and she didn't have friends or a support system around. And they had been living in this makeshift shanty down in the woods by Grant's house. And so Grant invited them over. And they declined at first, but then he gave them their, his cell phone number. And later that night, they actually called him back uh, from a local pizza shop. And Grant went and picked them up, brought them back to his house. Grant and his wife, Deb, stayed up late talking with them. And he, uh, they gave them a bed for the night, gave them showers. Grant had to leave early the next morning. He's a teacher. He had to get to school. And Deb and they had a little baby at the time. And, and so Deb and the little baby would have been there uh, alone with this couple. And that made them feel uncomfortable. So Grant called me. And so I basically, early in the morning, I think, as I remember it. And so I went over there and I picked up the couple. I spent time with them. We never saw the couple again. That's hospitality. Hospitality is very easily misunderstood by Christians. It's not so much throwing a good party for your good friends having a ton of good food. The word here is phylloxenia, which means to warmly receive strangers into your home as guests. I read a note that said hospitality was very important for early Christians because most of them could not afford hotels when they were traveling but depended on the provision of fellow believers. Seek hospitality as a couple. Have exchange students. Do foster care. Welcome missionaries when they're in town. Have your new neighbors over for dinner, all of which glorify Christ. That can help revitalize your marriage. Number 14, bless those who persecute you and don't curse them. Persecution can be physical, it can be verbal, it can be psychological, it can be political, it comes in various shapes and sizes, but it's always hostile. It hurts. And unfortunately, persecution happens in marriage. What's the natural response to persecution? You want to curse the person. You want to curse them. But there's a supernatural response. You've all, you've all heard of the term eulogy. The verb form of eulogy in Greek is eulogeo, which is uh, in this verse means calling down God's favor and blessing upon those who persecute you. So if your spouse persecutes you, you're going to feel like cursing them inside. Don't. Don't curse them. When you're persecuted... Uh, walk by the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to rain down blessing on your spouse. When you're persecuted, God can give you the grace to call down blessing and favor instead of curses. If you just listen to people, they tear down their spouses all the time. 
They do it behind their back. They probably do it at home in front of their face. They just shred each other with some really mean stuff, and that's a cancer in marriage. Bless your spouse. Ask God to bless your spouse. Even if they persecute you, it will end up being a blessing for you as well. 15, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Maybe despicable me can help us out with this point, so let's take a look. Look, Mom, I drew a picture of me landing on the moon. Eh. Look, Mom, I made the prototype of the rocket out of macaroni. Eh. Look, Mom, I made a real rocket based on the macaroni prototype. <gasps> eh. All right, now my, my kids and I think that's hilarious, by the way. Uh, but actually, if you put that in real life, oh, is that ever painful? It's pain. We want others to be excited when we're excited, don't we? If something good happens to your spouse, be the first one to be excited with them and to celebrate with them. Celebrate with them. And if they're struggling or grieving, feel their pain and cry with them. You don't always have to have the right thing to say. Feel with them. Feel. Feel something. If, if you're aloof, if you're unemotional, just know that that is deeply influencing and impacting the heart of your spouse and your marriage. Feel. Could, could it be that our lack of joy for our spouse is from jealousy? We want what they're getting? We don't have the gifts that they have? Are we jealous? And so, man, when something great happens, we're like, eh, eh. Maybe we don't weep because we don't care. You might be emotionally detached from your spouse. That's a problem, by the way. And I encourage you, you need to find out why you're like that, and you need to deal with it. You need to repent, and you need to deal with it by the grace of God. I think if you rejoice with others, it will heighten your joy and enrich your life. Even grieving with others Heightens your joy and enriches your life. It's real. It's loving. It's palpable. It connects you to people. The attitude of we're in this together goes a long way for marriage. 16, live in harmony with one another. Another translation would be be of the same mind toward one another. Paul, Paul exhorted the Philippians to be of one mind. 1 Corinthians 2.16 says, but we have the mind of Christ now, amen on this, you and your spouse probably think differently. Is that true? You probably don't approach life, some of you are like, mm. you, you probably don't approach life the exact same way, and that's okay because you can actually complement one another. Harmony and melody do sing nicely together, don't they? But Christians have one mind, namely the mind of Christ. Think like Christ together. It could save your marriage. Much conflict could be avoided in marriage when you and your spouse think biblically. You can work through challenges more effectively when you share the mind of Christ. If God's authoritative and unchanging word is your common foundation, the foundation from which you build your marriage, 
absolutely you can enjoy harmony. Because you're united in the truth, the clear truth of God's word. If you both seek to pattern your minds after God's word, opinions become less important, truth becomes all important, and God will bless your thinking because you're thinking his way. Submit to God's word and harmony will be there. Number 17, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Earlier in verse 3, Paul said not to think of yourself more highly than you should. And so we as married people have to keep a keen eye on God's sovereign grace, and then there won't be much room for pride. Some marriages are self-absorbed. Everything is about them. It's like they're in the center of the universe, And these are couples who flock to the prominent, to the powerful, to the wealthy, and to beautiful people, and they step right over all the people who have none of those things. God's grace produces humility, which causes couples to seek out ways to reach out and love the down and out, the poor, the lowly. As a couple, love the unlovely. Pursue those people in lower tax brackets, not as projects, as legitimate friends. Give time, give friendship, give love, give joy, give laughter. Give to everyone equally. My guess is, if you do that, it will improve your marriage. 18, never be wise in your own sight. Self-importance kills marriages. When we're enthralled, please get this. When we are enthralled with our own wisdom, we cannot at the same time be enthralled with the infinite wisdom of God. Christ is our wisdom. We have no wisdom apart from him. He is our wisdom. You know, a great way to exasperate, to frustrate, to aggravate, to drive your spouse nuts is to think and act like you're always right. Conceit can cause you to start seeing your spouse as naive and simple-minded, and so you start slipping in to belittling them. And if you belittle yourself, you are wise in your own eyes. You have a conceit problem. You are prideful. It has nothing to do with them. And you need to repent of your self-importance and trust Christ to reveal more of God's amazing grace to you because you can't see it right. Because grace destroys conceit. We are all on the same level, and grace puts us there. All right, the last five verses of Romans 12 are closely related. 19, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. You've got to get rid of the yeah, but syndrome. Got to get rid of it. It goes like this. Stanley is three. Alfred is five. They're brothers. Stanley takes the Lego man from Alfred. Alfred obviously doesn't like it. And so Alfred up and pops Stanley. Stanley starts crying and goes and tells mom. And when Alfred is questioned, he says, yeah, but Stanley took my Lego man. As if Stanley's thievery justifies his own act of violence. Folks, this is basic Christianity. This is like kindergarten Sunday school lesson. When someone does something evil against us, it is never, ever, ever right to retaliate. Ever. 
Yet what do we do? We so often look right over our sin and we point the finger at our spouse's sin as if doing that would somehow get us off the hook. Doesn't work that way. No, no, God leaves no room for that. Your spouse will absolutely treat you poorly at times. It's coming if it hasn't already. Never add insult to injury. Why join in their sin by retaliating? Now you're as bad, if not worse, than they are. God wants you to do good in return. When you do what is honorable, instead of doing what you feel like doing, you showcase what? The power of God's grace in your life. That glorifies God. We need to do a lot more thinking about how we can respond in honorable ways. And, you know, folks, we're done unless we tap into the power of the Holy Spirit. Because if we don't tap into the power of the Holy Spirit, we're going to respond like everybody else. 20, live peaceably with all. You can't control your spouse, but you can control how you treat your spouse. Paul said, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. So keep the peace as far as it's concerning you. You need God's grace, but you can actually be a peacekeeper. Human nature is argumentative, antagonistic, and aggressive. The good news is that because of the finished work of Christ, the spirit in us can override our human nature and we can actually be peacekeepers. Sometimes your spouse is going to instigate the fight. Come on. And it's hanging out there where you're like, am I going to go? Am I entering? Am I stepping into this? Yes. And we step in. If you're going to be a peacekeeper, you need to immediately put aggression to death in your own heart and surrender to the Spirit so that you're not overcome by this. Your demeanor means a whole lot in how successful your marriage will be in keeping the peace in your marriage. And and when you step back and you consider how absolutely painful the sin of your spouse is in your own life, how how that feels, this next point is so valid. It is your hope. Verse 21, never avenge yourself. This is not often what we want to hear because we really want to grind it in and give it back when our spouse wounds us. But be assured, God never misses anything. So vengeance is not yours to bring. Romans 12, 19 is both terrifying and comforting at the same time. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And Hebrews 10, 31 adds, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You should never, ever avenge yourself, dear Christian, because God will repay, either through the cross or in eternal hell. You never need to avenge yourself because God is storing up holy wrath and vengeance for everyone who scoffs at his grace and mercy, rejects his son, resists his spirit, ignores his word, and mistreats his people. God will repay. So if your spouse is a Christian and deeply wounds you, 
Know that their past, present, and future sins have been covered and paid for in full on the cross. It's already been punished. And so that duty is not on you to give vengeance. Vengeance has been done because it has been poured out on his son, Jesus Christ. If your spouse is not a believer and deeply hurts you, know they have no sacrifice for sin. The wrath of God is on them, and instead of trying to avenge yourself, pray that God would assuage his wrath before your spouse is consumed by it. Pray for their salvations with tears of compassion because God's eternal wrath is looming for them. I read this note, so helpful. Feelings of revenge can be overcome by realizing that God will make all things right and that he will visit his wrath on those who deserve it. That's hope for the Christian. That's hope that a Muslim who guns them down in the name of Allah will get the justice that they deserve. This helps you on a day-by-day basis if you believe the truth. And it's, it's, it's terrifying to fall into the hands of a holy God who keeps an account And it's so comforting that every injustice against us, we don't have to do anything in retribution because God will take care of it. Does that just allow you just to be, oh man. Leave the avenging to God. It will help your marriage. Last application, 22. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is evil winning in the world? And just as soon as you're ready to say yes, you've got to say no because Jesus has overcome the world. We cannot be overcome by evil. We must wield the power of good and wage war against the power of evil. We stand with Christ and we win. Paul said in Romans 8, 37, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because of Christ, we will not be consumed by evil, nor will we overcome it with evil. We conquer with good. We conquer with good. So what does that look like practically? Look at verse 20. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. That's a quote from Proverbs 25. And we have to be careful with that because you don't do good so that your enemy suffers third-degree burns on their face. All right? That's not the idea. You overcome evil with good so that your good produces shame in them. And that hopefully that shame leads them to repentance and faith and a change of heart. Folks, this works in marriage. Don't allow the sins of your spouse to just overcome you. Don't throw gas on the fire. Show your spouse relentless goodness so that you just wear them out with goodness. And perhaps God will give them a change of heart. There they are, 22 things, straight out of Scripture. Every single one of my points is a quote from Paul. 22 baby steps toward revitalizing your marriage. And if you pick two or three, just two or three, that you're like, man, that one really hit me this morning, and you just commit to working on those baby steps, I think God might surprise you with some immediate improvement in your marriage. 
But no matter what happens and no matter how your response, your spouse responds, if you work on these things, you will find greater joy in God and God will be more greatly glorified in your joy in God. Let's pray. Father, what a wonderful, wonderful word we have from Paul. 22 things that we can immediately work on. And God, we are toast if we do not approach this with grace and with the power of the Holy Spirit in us. We can't do this stuff on our own, but we can when we trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ and we draw power from him by faith and he helps us bear fruit. So help these 22 things to start working out more evidently in our marriages here at Jerusalem Church. And you know it goes even beyond that, God. I pray that beyond marriage, these things would work out in our lives as Christians. This is what you want us to do as Christians. This is how you want us to live. And so by grace, through faith, I pray that we can bear the fruit of righteousness. In the name of Jesus and for the fame of Jesus, amen.